Hello and welcome to episode two of the Off West End podcast. I'm Tom Brocklehurst. I'm here with guest critics Sinead Chisholm and Julian Eaves. We're here for an hour or so talking about all things across the London Off West End. Coming up in the next hour, we have show recommendations from our critics, an interview with the Park Theatre's artistic director, Jez Bond, and then a look ahead to what's opening across London in February. Since we last recorded, we've had the announcements of the Off West End Awards finalists in each category. So we'll be talking about a few of our favourites from that list. As ever, we'd love to hear from you. You can email the show at podcast at offwestend.com if you have a review you want to share with us, and we'd be happy to read it out on the next podcast. You can visit offwestend.com for news and listings of all shows across the Off West End, and there's a new website launching in the coming months. You can follow at Off West End on Twitter for news of new awards nominations and for details of tickets of the awards ceremony at Battersea Arts Centre on the 5th of March. So to shows then, and there's always been already been some nominations for the 20, 2021 Off West End Awards, with Rags the Musical picking up a, a raft of nominations this week. It's been nominated for Best Production, Lead Performance in a Musical, two supporting performances, the musical director and the director. Julian, you've seen the rags at the Park Theatre. What was your verdict? Well, it's overwhelming. Uh, it's one of those extraordinary events where you find yourself at a moment of transition in the theatre. I suppose most people, if they know anything at all about musicals, they've heard of great big shows like Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, great big film, top hole, you know, it's like an epoch-defining event. Well, Joseph Stein, who wrote the story about the people of that little village, mm -hmm. Anna Tevka, a shtetl, a Jewish population living on the fringes of society deep in sort of Tsarist Russia, subjected to pogroms and terror and eventually forced to flee. He then imagined sort of 22 years later, what happened to those people? Where did they go? Um, not necessarily Tevya and Golda and all the girls and, the, and the, the, the young men that came into their lives, but the rest of them, all of the others and all of the others from all of the different villages and places throughout that kind of world. What was their future? So many of them went to America. Mm -hmm. And this show begins with a ship arriving in New York Harbor, Ellis Island. There are people getting off the vessel, ready to embark upon new lives. And we focus on a goodly number of them, about 10 or 12 different individuals, all of whom follow different paths. And not only are we seeing something new in terms of those individuals, we're now, uh, when the show was written, in the depths of the 1980s. Mm -hmm. You know, we're in Reagan's America, where right. um, a different kind of ethos pertains. This is different from the 60s, the hopeful 60s that produced things like Fiddler on the Roof with its great humanity and warmth. This is an altogether much tougher cookie. And the destinies of these people are much more challenging because they're encountering not the world of the past the long ago czarist empire of a hundred years ago and more they're actually confronting a kind of world which we recognize very much today as still existing in trump's america in the america of george w bush mm -hmm. this is the reactionary enclosed america first keep the foreigners out get the immigrants out of the way build walls it's that kind of world but it's happening then so you're seeing in a kind of it's a kind of pathology of America. So even if you know nothing at all about the development of musicals, you know what's happening in politics, you've seen the news, and you can see the roots of some of the problems we're dealing with today being laid down a long time ago in America. So it, it has that kind of um, excitement about it as a story uh, that we can relate to. That's on one side. On another side, you've got 
the Park Theatre, which mm-hmm. is a beautiful new uh, theatre with its two auditoriums, one with 200 seats, one with 90 seats, that has for a number of years now been building up an astonishing reputation of doing new drama, interesting revivals, and also welcoming in companies from elsewhere. And that's what's been happening with their programme of musicals, which are entwined with all of the rest of the programming they're doing. And over the years, uh, Jez Bond, who we'll be hearing from later in your yep. interview with him, um, he has encouraged the theatre to stage the lesser-known shows, the, the sort of the ugly duckling numbers that have got great things in them but perhaps haven't had great success mm-hmm. along the way. And Rags is a number one candidate. You know, right. if you talk about the great disasters of Broadway history, okay. then Rags is definitely one of them. Written for a vehicle for Teresa Stratus after she'd scored such a success as a, a leading soprano back in, back then, it's uh, it played eighteen perform previews and then lasted just four performances on Broadway. On Broadway, right. after some pretty stinging reviews, it sank like a stone. Um, and the writers thought, well, you know, Charles Strauss has written the tunes, beautifully melodic music, fantastic range of sounds from sort of uh, Kletzmer music, which hauntingly begins a kind of onstage band, actor musicians playing the overture in the most voluptuous, seductive way. It's really charming and, and romantic, right the way through to barbershop quartets and vaudeville numbers and ragtime and all the kind of sounds and noises of, of Manhattan at the turn of the century. Um, all of that's happening on a kind of scale and an impressiveness which just screams that this is a show which could easily go back into big mainstream theatres. So it's a, a show which is about transitions in in stories, in people's lives, but also as a piece of um, work to, to, to staged by the, the park, it's pointing their ambition to contact you know bigger theatres and a larger audience. Okay, sounds pretty great. And yeah, so the and the performances are amazing as well. I mean, there's three nominations for performances come through already. Do you agree with those nominations? Yes, indeed, very much so. I mean, it's it's a huge cast. It's nearly twenty people on stage, mm-hmm. and then you've got this band of musicians, many of whom also act and sing and dance. There are so many areas in which you just notice quality. Um, even there are two guys who do a kind of like vaudeville double act. The Green right. Horns is their number. And they're fantastic, you know, in their own right. You'd want to hear, you want to be with them all evening. But there are so many other people. Carolyn Maitland, I think, really stands out. Uh, she's taking on the Teresa Stratus role. She has a lot of singing to do. Mm-hmm. And she's a terrific singing actress, you know, who makes you believe in the reality of every single moment that she's there. And interestingly... Uh, it has, in terms of the staging, even though it's a, a kind of a plain staging, not very fancy, all sorts of magical and surprising things happen along the way. And she's got to be able to travel that journey, as indeed have all of the other performers. Rachel Eisen, I've got to take my hat off to, who has a, a supporting role, but my goodness me, she really comes into her own as the, the show develops. Mm-hmm. And I think possibly runs away with the cherry on top of the cake uh, that Charles Strauss and the lyricist Stephen Schwartz, Mm -hmm. of course famous from Wicked and so on, and Charles Strauss I think we know from Annie, his his great tune-filled blockbuster, 
Um, she, I think, probably runs away with the best tune in the show right. later on. But it's it's a nice wait for it. But along the way, uh, Nick Barstow's arrangements and and Joe Bunker dealing with the the management of the M, you know the MDs role create all sorts of musical treats along the way. Smashing. When's that until? It's playing. Uh, not very many more performances too. You've got to hurry up. It's only on till the eighth of February. But it's an absolute bargain, you know, £18.50 to see a show that might well find its way into the West End or even to Broadway. But I will say one final word for Brona Lagan, Mm -hmm. the um, very promising young director who has taken on this sprawling, kaleidoscopic, sort of melting pot type story and makes the whole thing tick together, fuses it all together, beautifully lit by Drew Anderson, all sorts of great qualities you know brought together in this fabulous production by Katie Lipson and Ferrari Entertainments working together with Hope Mill Theatre in uh, Birmingham where it started and uh, who knows where it's in conjunction with the Park Theatre now headed. Nice okay so another show that has been nominated for some awards already is Scrounger at the Finborough Theatre so it's been nominated for lead performance for Athena Stevens, uh, sound design, new play and best director um, which and I saw it last week so it's a true story by Athena Stevens, who is an artist with cerebral palsy. Uh, so this happened to her a few years ago. Uh, she was boarding a, a flight from London to Glasgow and her wheelchair uh, on being loaded onto the plane got damaged. Uh, so she was removed from the flight, uh, to sent home and the wheelchair was never replaced. Uh, so this is really her story of being trapped in a flat, trying to raise enough social media profile to get enough attention to try and get some justice, essentially. The wheelchair itself cost £30,000. It was a custom-made thing. So it was, it's, it's really um, quite a, a, a brilliant show to tell the story of somebody, of somebody being completely immobile, uh, you know, robbed of their mobility, of their ability to go outside or go anywhere. And the, the absolute frustration and anger uh, of trying to deal with people through the medium of the internet and the phones and also you know a lot of her anger is also directed at at the people around her the people she thought she could depend on to be with her uh, through this really difficult time and and their reactions to her situation it's a a two-person show athena uh, plays herself uh, as you might imagine and um, her pa and all the other roles are played by lee quinn and um, it's you know Best Director, I think, is really uh, well-deserved. I think it's a great performance from Athena, and it's a really fascinating piece which uh, does a lot with, you know, this this story which could feel so... Um, it's very difficult to stage a performance where nobody really leaves the room, essentially, uh, and make it dramatic and make it interesting and make it powerful, and it really is a powerful piece. Um, so I... I, I mean, I personally, I thought it was really great. Uh, it's on till the 1st of February. Uh, tickets start from £20. That's the Finborough and Earls Court. Um, okay, so uh, next. Uh, Shanae, you've seen The Process at the Bunker. Yes, I have. And it was a really eye-opening piece for me to watch. Um, the premise of it is we have Joe, a deaf woman and founder of tech company Crop. And she's created an app called The Process. Uh, through this app, each individual is able to find out their cost efficiency, which is calculated using both their cost to the state and what they earn. 
Through this calculation, you are then ranked along a spectrum with cost negative at one end and cost positive at the other. If you cost the state a significant amount in comparison to what you earn, you may become a null and sent to a nullion centre. Once you're sent to the centre, you're put on trial to decide your value to the state. Um, the play itself centres around Joe and her relationship with her friend Eli, who happens to be sent to Nelson Centre, and her son Andrew, who are also deaf, and the relationship with her company. Um, it was interesting for me because I became aware of how unaware I was of the lives of deaf people and the barrier that's created because the majority of society doesn't know British Sign Language and how they communicate with the world if they communicate, if they can communicate with the world because people don't know how to communicate with them and how English has become this standardised language across all all of the world. Like you go on holiday and you expect people to know English when you're going to a foreign country and just that in itself just goes to show how powerful English is in a language and how other languages aren't really considered with the same respect. Um, and then even within an English-speaking country, people who speak English in sign language can't even do that to the person that they're sitting next to on the bus or the train and how isolating that can be. Um, and it also provides a commentary on our relationship with the state and how easy it is for people to become dehumanised and reduced to a monetary value. And saying that our society isn't too far away from that reality, it probably is that already, um, which makes the process relevant and timely as not only does it uncover a cross-section of society that is consistently overlooked, but it exposes how close we are to the type of future presented in the play um, and how through society's current lack of consideration and understanding of the lives of deaf people and those treated of being of little value. Um, it just it just made me understand a little bit more. And I, I was actually almost like brought to tears in some parts just because watching someone trying to speak to people who they can't speak to um, is so annoying. Even if you're having an argument with someone and you're trying to put your point across, how frustrating that is when the person can hear you and they're not listening. Just imagining how it must feel that, you can't listen to them and they can't listen to you and there's there's nothing you can do about that um is 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 horrible to watch but it's it's needed because it's not something i would have thought about just as a random thought or just navigating in society walking on the train or the bus or you know that kind of stuff is not something i would even consider and i don't think it's many things something that people consider anyway because we take it for granted hearing and seeing um, I only know how horrible it must be to be blind because I need contact lenses. But if I didn't need contact lenses, I probably wouldn't be like, oh, what if I woke up and I couldn't see? It's a real thing for me when I have to put on my contact lenses to see. I can't imagine if I needed something to help me hear because it's something I I, I use my ears all the time. Um, it's a really simple thing, but the fact that it's so simple means it should be something we should all know and, and something we should all understand. Sounds really good. Um, so how did they... How do they show that like disconnect between the hearing and the non-hearing? So at the beginning, there's like a statement that's projected on the wall saying some people will understand, some people won't understand. Parts of this play is going to be in sign language. Parts of this play is only going to be in English. So it's kind of already positioning you to know you might feel uncomfortable. You might not understand anything and that's okay. That's a part of the process. Um, and there was a scene where all of it is is silent it's just you just kind of hear this ongoing recurring sound um not like a beeping but a really long sound and everything there's all action and everyone's miming and you don't really know what's going on there's scenes when 
um, Joe and her son are speaking in sign language and I don't know what's going on, but obviously people who understand sign language are laughing or they're understanding and empathizing and you're sitting there like, I don't, you know, I can only guess. Um, there's also one character, um, Andrew's girlfriend, who partly knows sign language but doesn't understand and she's kind of that, that way in because she's kind of just interpreting as best as she can, which is what a lot of the audience members are going to be feeling. Um, so I think that balance and that mix is also just a reflection of what work needs to be done in general with um, British Sign Language and making it a standardised language as well. Um, and there's the frustration of the translator who translates um, for Joe in the court scenes um, as well as another thing because he's having to translate things for Joe and translate for people to understand Joe and just that complication of maybe if there was two people if there was more people who who knew how to speak sign language we, you wouldn't have that problem because you would need to rely on one person who has that special knowledge that no one else does even if that wasn't the point of there being one translator in the play it kind of reflects on how specialized that skill is and it really shouldn't be a skill it just should be a standard sure. so you're getting lessons then yeah <laughs> yeah no I, I i would like to because it's I think my mum actually went to um, start doing sign language. I think it's just something that should be encouraged and be more at the forefront of people's mind, to be honest. If we can learn how to read and write and people who are deaf are learning to read and write, we shouldn't just be using that as a one form of communication to speak to them. Absolutely. Well, The Bunkers had a load of great shows recently. So that sounds like another good one. Um, yeah. When's that on till? The 1st of February and tickets are £15. It's a really nice venue and all the performances are relaxed. Great. Okay, so uh, Julian, what else have you seen this week? Well, I, a lot, actually. I've been going out a, a great deal. And it's a great thing, I think, that so much theatre at the moment is is asking us to see life through different eyes and, and, and uh, consider our own position as well by that empathising with people who are, are different from ourselves. And few things could be more different from the audience yesterday at the Arcola, I think, from the experience than the experiences of David Daniel Ward, who has written this extraordinary piece, which I think, Tom, you saw up in Edinburgh and the Fringe um, last summer, called The Canary and the Crow, uh, a phrase which might be memorable to certain people from the dim distance past and Aesop's fables and, and hearing this famous competition between who has the better song, the canary or the crow, and a pig comes along and is, and is asked to sit in judgment. Taking this idea as his way in, um, what Daniel has done is to create a kind of semi-autobiographical piece. Well, maybe it's three-quarters autobiographical. And he's stitched together a number of experiences that he's had. He's expanded on them. And now the Arcola Theatre in Hackney, fascinating uh, theatre that's been going for 20 years now, I believe. Under the yeah, leadership. this year. I think it's their 20th anniversary season. Yeah. An incredible journey uh, that has been led on by Mehmet Ergun, who founded them, I think, in originally in Arcola Street, which was off the Stoke Newton High Road. And now they've moved a few years ago to much bigger premises and they're reaching out, I think, they had 65,000 visitors last year. Really incredible, with an amazing access programme. You can have pay what you can Tuesdays to go along there. There's no barrier to anybody attending there, apart from the number of seats. And this show, The Canary and the Crow, is selling out. It's only playing a few more performances. I think it's running till the 8th of February. 
there is a strong likelihood, I think, of it having a life beyond that. It's one of the most thrilling, exciting, exhilarating, splendid uh, new shows that I've seen in a very long time. A um, couple of years ago, I saw a little Sunday evening one-off show at the Arts Theatre. Um, six girls up on stage doing a kind of quasi-rock concert. People said, well, this doesn't have much of a future. <laughs> well, it's booking into 2021 now. It's opening on Broadway. It's franchised throughout America. It's called Six. <laughs> and I think something along those lines might possibly, you never know, yeah. be, be going to happen to this outfit because with Prez 96, not, a.k.a. Nigel Taylor, who's one of the actors in the outfit, um, they've got some really wonderful music that runs all the way through, played by actor-musicians. Uh, they've got a, 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 another couple of performers who are involved in this little quartet of them present the whole thing. It's sort of grown a bit out of the idea of gig theatre, and many of them working for Middle Child, which is a Hull-based theatre company, which also has connections with people like Hull Truck, that people have probably remembered from people like John Godbar and in all of his famous uh, comedies from the 80s. Um, and also new writing companies like Payne's Plough that put them under their umbrella when they were at Edinburgh um, are encouraging them to, you know, and developing this, this new piece. And who knows where it will go next? You know, I, I spoke to Daniel yesterday and he was saying how they very much want to sort of play with it and expand it and see how far it will go, but make it the best it possibly can be. He was... A, very disarming, very sort of humbly saying how surprised he was to see that the, the previews themselves had sold out and they were having to bring in extra seats to squeeze people in, um, which I think is indicative of the great success they've got going there. So if you can get through to the Arcola Theatre, which is near Dalston, Kingsland, uh, and Dalston Junction, where yep. the two bits sort of meet together there, right in the heart of Hackney. Do go and see it, but don't leave it too late to ask for a ticket. Can you tell us a bit about the story? Like, just the st give us a little brief. On yeah, absolutely. The story is very much uh, taken from the point it begins at the point when he was training as an actor, um, and someone came into the, uh, the, the drama school he was attending, a mainstream, big, well-recognised drama school here, in the UK, in London, and asked only to talk to the black, Asian, Middle Eastern, sort of mixed ethnic um, uh, students, which caused a little bit of a frisson because, you know, not none, though, BMAME uh, students were not used to being excluded, oh dear. Uh, but anyway, th this actor then did, they gave a talk. Um, which was very kind of standard, you know, basically this is how I got into the acting, these are the rules, uh, roles I took, these are the parts I did, all that kind of thing. And about halfway through, when everyone was kind of relaxed and chilled, and this is a very, very venerable figure in, um, in British theatre now, he asked the question, he says, what's it like being black at drama school? And there was this kind of silence. And I think out of that silence, the thinking process is started, which led to this play. And this play is a part, an answer to that question. Uh, because it looks at well, what's it like being black in this society anyway, going to a posh white grammar school, which Daniel did do. He was only in the part of uh, the world which still has selection. Um, and off he went as one of only two, I think, uh, you know, students of colour in his, in his year. And then later on going to drama school in which he found himself in a very similar situation. Yes. And asking these questions, and you kind of get under the skin of this thing 
in a way that you don't really notice. It has this kind of uh, improvisational feel to it. I mean, you go into the auditorium and he's out there, he's leaping around the stage, he's got a handheld mic, wave your hands in the air and things like that. It's got a party feel, you kind of relax. And, you know, that whole kind of transition into being part of a theatre audience, you know, which is so difficult to make happen with lots of strangers all in a room that's about to be darkened uh, around them. They found that way in. So it's got this kind of like loose... Uh, feel to it but it's quite carefully thought out there isn't anything which is superfluous there and it really focuses your concentration and rewards rewards handsomely your attendance and the attention you give it when you realize this person's story about how then he went through a number of experiences which we know are happening on a daily basis in this world we live in but are not receiving the platform that they arguably need and require for all of us to understand and appreciate better the world we live in, what's happening, and where we might be going. Yeah, it's a great show. I mean, I really loved it. Um, the music's amazing. Like the story's great. They're they're a really talented company. Um, and as you say, who knows what might happen to them next? Absolutely. Uh, I was also at the Arcola this week um, in the smaller studio, seeing Beryl by Maxine Peake. She's come back for a second run. Uh, it's a really fun show about Beryl Burton, who was a cycling champion in the, well, throughout uh, several decades, uh, from the 50s to the 1970s and 80s. Um, her records stood for many, many years. She's an incredible, incredibly talented, incredibly dedicated cyclist um, who broke some male records in some cases, um, won best all-rounder for 25 years in a row, was one of the most incredible sportswomen this country's ever produced. And this is, uh, you know, her story of growing up, having, you know, a, a heart defect when she was at a young age, being told that she should avoid strenuous exercise, uh, and then falling in with a cycle club, you know, and just loving it, loving getting on the road, uh, loving competing, loving to prove those doctors wrong. So I think, uh, and there's a lot said in the show about her drive to to make a mark, to prove the experts wrong to to um, to make her mark on this world and to and to show everybody that you know she wasn't going to lie down. Uh, and it's a really fun show. It's four actors um, playing different parts, and there's lots of sort of between scene banter. There's you know it's a really fun, uh, light-hearted show um, that does a lot with the small space, um, you know, made-up props, silly costumes, little fights between the actors, um, which really make it a fun show to watch i mean the fact that you know there's a lot of the time they spent with all the actors on bikes and they managed to you know not make that seem repetitive um it's a real it's a real achievement i think and it was a, a again a packed house last night at the arcola um maybe full of cyclists i don't know but i mean uh, i think anybody can enjoy this it's a, a really great show and um beryl is played by uh, jessica duffield um who really gives a fantastic performance um that is until the 8th of feb and uh, tickets start from £15 on that one. Um, Sinead, you've been to see Cops at the Southwark Playhouse. Yes, I went to see that on Friday. Um, and just describe the story a little bit. Um, it's a snapshot into the everyday lives of four cops in 1950s Chicago. Um, and the story follows them through a series of stakeouts trying to find a witness that was a part of a mob violence type crime. Um, and it's discovered that there's a leak somewhere in the precinct that someone's been saying something to the mob and we need to find out who it is. Um, it's one of those plays that you kind of become a part of their world. 
Um, you get to know them as people and that's what drives the story. Um, you know, you see them in the office every day and them going on the stakeout, stakeouts. Um, and you kind of just get to know them and get used to their character and get used to how they interact with each other. And it's very much about those relationships. And what I found interesting is that you have a black man in 1950s being, you know, a detective and he's around three other white men. And the way they talk about race is almost like, it's not very politically correct, but it doesn't make me feel uncomfortable. Um, they'll say certain things about certain groups and races and cultures and you don't feel like they've offended anyone. And it's very interesting how times have changed. That isn't to say what they said was correct or that it was fair, that it was accurate, but it's just interesting to see how society's changed and how those attitudes were very much embedded in the everyday lives of those people and how now it's become something that people kind of keep in their minds and just how that's kind of shifted is quite interesting. And also how we have Stan, who's the oldest out of them, and he's very anecdotal. And he's both, I would say, wise because of the experience he's had in the war um, and as being a police officer, but he's both ignorant at the same time and how that kind of plays out in when he says certain things, when people try and catch him out, especially Foxy, who's the youngest of them and how he likes to aggravate people. And he comes from a privileged background of going to college and a dad with money and how he's kind of become a cop and what what his intentions would be because I guess the views of money is that if you have money why are you going to do something like that you don't need to um and that creates a lot of suspicion as well because like what are you doing here and that kind of idea that people who have money and privilege in that sense wouldn't want to do something as average and normal and how that creates suspicion is also something that is even seen today um difficult to trust people who have a lot of money why who knows um and then we have Rosie, who's um, the black character. And he's quite sarcastic and is Stan's longest standing friend. And they always argue all the time, but it's just something they do. And it's just normal. Um, and it helps them kind of tick along. And you have Yuli, who's the most senior of them, who's quite understated and quiet. And you don't really get to know much about him in the beginning. Which, again, these different character types help to keep the suspense and help to keep you thinking what's going to happen next, what's going to be the plot twist, what's going to change and I think that's what makes it important when the character when a story sorry is driven by character because you need to be invested in these people you need to like them or dislike them and understand their dynamic in order to want to see the end of something especially when it's very much an everyday mundane subject and environment you're kind of dealing with and I think it's really funny um given the fact that it has this kind of like tv sketch vibe to it um, only because of the humour and only because of the repetition and you can kind of quickly catch on to the jokes and I think that's done really well because you can watch something like that that's quite funny and quite repetitive and think oh it's overdone and I get it now you don't get tired of the humour you kind of look forward to knowing what this character is going to do and how they're going to react so I really enjoyed it for that aspect of it and the lighting was also really good just in isolating certain parts of the stage because it was a small space and they were going to different outside environments, it was important for the lighting to really give you that feel of being outside, being somewhere else. It was important for the sound to also create that environment as well. And it did that really well and seamlessly, um, which aided the transition of the scenes. Um, and I really enjoyed it for that. And I think a lot of people enjoyed it around me as well. And it was that typical kind of detective whodunit type of thing. Um, but- so they're trying to find a, a, a mole. Yeah, yeah, basically. Okay. 
Um, and also try and, but that wasn't even the focus of the story. You were just kind of watching these people live their lives, I think. And it's one of those plays where you don't go there because you're trying to see crime and violence and action. You're going there to be invested in people's lives that you probably wouldn't know about if you didn't go and see the play. Right, okay. Cool. Uh, when is that until? It's on until the 1st of February and tickets are £22. Five minute walk away from Elephant Castle Station. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, okay, um, one other thing we were going to talk about, Julian, was uh, 42nd Street, which is still on. Um, that's got some uh, a lot of nominations for the Off West End Awards. Still running until next week, I believe. You've seen that? I have, yes. And how many people, you know, over the last 20-odd years have seen the great, you know, Gower Champions, you know, uh, crowning glory, this fantastic, huge Broadway show, 42nd Street, the famous moment when the, the curtain at the Drury Lane rose up and you saw these 42 pairs of feet tap dancing their way through, I can't remember what the opening number was, but it, it was it's just uh, 42nd Street or We're In The Money, I think that comes a bit later. All these wonderful, great songs, Warren and Dubin, you know, uh, optimistic, you know, uh, cheerer uppers from the early 1930s, the, the years of the Great Depression in America, with millions of people without hope and so on. And these songs really saying, "Come on, let's let's get up and let's do something." Even it's like putting on a show in in a theatre. To take that and you know, uh, amazingly uh, put that on the stage of this little theatre. Uh, in a room upstairs from the Gatehouse pub in Highgate, famously known as Upstairs at the Gatehouse, one of London's oldest continuously operated uh, fringe theatres, run by the, the fantastic team of Katie and John Plews, and of course their wonderful family that's also produced Racky Plews, the choreographer-director, um, amongst others. Um, and all the many people that have been through their doors they have a genius in doing this sort of thing. They can take a great big project and they can shrink it down and they can give you the experience of feeling that you have this spectacle being played out in front of you on this tiny little stage with just over a dozen performers. It is exquisitely well done. I believe the rest of the, this run is sold out, but for anybody who's wondering, what am I supposed to do? You know, <laughs> few times a year, Ovation Productions, that's the in-house team, they get together a whole bunch of young actors, actresses, very often just starting out in their careers, and they give them these wonderful showcase opportunities. And they'll sprinkle in a few hardier types, you know, troopers, you know, with a bit more experience and so on, um, to sort of, uh, you know, uh, support them along that way. But it's a chance to see some really ace entertainment of, yeah, an escapist kind, of a light-hearted kind, but done brilliantly well. And, of course, you're right in the room with these people, and you, there's no fakery there. There's, there's nothing to take away, you know, a brilliantly executed tap dance routine. Gorgeous costumes, fantastic music, you know, played throughout the massive number of tunes running the way through this show. It's great stuff. Do you do know you, what I mean? So you think we should uh, go down and see if there are any returns? There's always a chance. <laughs> there's, you know, there's something you should never rule out. There's always a possibility. Check their website. But, you know, look ahead. What else is coming up? Some amazing things are coming. Chris Burgess, wonderful writer. But we'll, we'll talk about him in a moment. In the second part, yeah. Yes. Okay, so now we're going to go to my conversation uh, with Jess Bond from the Park Theatre.
So I'm now on the stage of Park 90, the studio space at the Park Theatre, and I'm joined by the artistic director of the park, Jazz Bond. If you don't know the park, it's uh, situated right by Finsbury Park Tube Station. It's been open since 2013, so still fairly new on the off-west end scene. Uh, they present a wide range of plays, musicals, revivals and new writing, as well as an education programme for adults as well as children. Jess, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Um, so we're just uh, one week into the new season for 2020. Can you tell us a bit about what's coming up in the programme? Yes, we've got two fantastic shows at the moment uh, and very different shows. Uh, in Park 200, we have Rags the Musical, uh, which is the story of uh, Jewish immigrants into New York. And it's beautifully told. It, it actually astounded me um, going in, you know, when you walk into your own space and see a show that feels like it's a West End production, you know, in terms of the, the probably got about a thousand lighting cues and uh, the sound is incredible because there's, there's a band, there's a cast and I think the cast and band are about sort of 18, 20 people, um, a, a lot of them on stage and it is incredible what they've managed to achieve and yet it's being kept absolutely intimate. So on one level you're watching this huge production value West End show and on another level you are breathing the same air as these people in the same room as them. And it is a beautiful, touching story. Um, and really proud to, to, to have that on. And in Park 90 at the moment, we, uh, where we're sitting, um, uh, it's luckily a, a little bit uh, warmer than it was the other day. I walked in a couple of days ago and it was like the Arctic. Um, I think someone had come and put the air conditioning on. But of course, uh, it should be in many ways like the Arctic at the moment yeah. because um, we are doing Shackleton's Stowaway, uh, which is the, the true story of the, uh, uh, the relationship between Ernest Shackleton, the great uh, explorer and, uh, and a stowaway who managed to sneak on board. Uh, potentially putting everyone's lives at risk in terms of you know the food distribution and everything like that, uh, and and uh, sort of through the eyes of uh, Shackleton and the stowaway, we we hear about his adventures, uh, and that is attracting great interest. I think there's a lot of excitement about true stories. Um, he's in some ways a great British hero, really. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, coming up, you're directing La Cage Fall. Um, so, can you tell us a bit about your your take on that? you know, sort of well-revered old farce. Yes. Well, it's, it's very interesting, because you say well-revered old farce. It is uh, the f original farce that spawned um, the French film, yeah. uh, two French sequels, the American musical, uh, and the American film The Birdcage, of course, with uh, Robin Williams and Nathan Lane. Yeah. Um, but what people tend to forget is that they've not actually seen the sure. original play. Yeah. Uh, I've spoken to so many people, say, oh yes, I saw the play. I thought, no, it must be me in the musical because yeah. we're the first people ever really? in the world to do the play in the English language. Uh, it was one of the longest running uh, hits in France mm -hmm. uh, and it ran in Paris for four years where Jean Poiret, the writer, mm -hmm. uh, starred in it with another actor called Michel Serrault who mm -hmm. went on to do the movie. Uh, and it was an absolute success. We, we're told by um, our researcher that on some nights apparently the, the play would uh, differ by as much as half an hour because wow. uh, Jean Poiret and Michel Serrault would improvise ver various sections. Such is the nature of this uh, extraordinary farce. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can tell you we are having such fun in the rehearsal room. It is a delight. We have a terrific bunch of actors. Um, it's joyous to work on. And, and it's so um, unusual, I guess, to, to work on a play 
the story of which everybody knows, mm -hmm. but the play itself that they don't. Yeah. Um, and to actually say, here is the original that, that sparked off all of these other um, <clears throat> spin-offs. And, um, and there's something, of course, uh, that you get from a play that you don't get from the musical, mm -hmm. um, because because of course the musical's got you know, quite a number of fantastic songs, but it means that the dialogue per se, um, there isn't as much of that wonderful witty dialogue, not as much as the kind of traditional door slamming stuff. So this is f so physical and so relentless. Um, and also, of course, it, you know, it, it's also far more exciting and intimate than what you, what you get on television um, or, or film. You know, as I said, um, with Rags playing at the moment, it, it, it's lovely to have something large in a really intimate space and mm -hmm. feel like you're breathing the same air as those actors. Um, and that's what we've got in La Cage for the first time, to be able to actually sit in the room above the club with these characters and spend two hours with them. And it, it's, it's a laugh a minute from, <clears throat> from curtain up, it really is. Great, it must be really fun. Mm. So uh, obviously it's set in the 70s. How did the, how did the sexual politics update to today? You kept it in the 70s, that's right. Yes, we kept it in the 70s. Um, there was a version that existed 10 years or so ago. My, my sort of history with this is um, very briefly, I was, well, I remember when I was growing up as a kid watching the film and thinking, oh, that was such a good film, and it kind of felt a bit like a play. Mm. I'd always seemed to have a bit of a nose for that. And I would often watch the credits at the end, and I remember seeing, oh, based on a stage yeah. play by Jean Pai, and I thought, oh, gosh, how interesting, and looked into it at the time. And um, you know, days before Google, it was quite tough, but I did some research and came back blank. Um, so it was always an idea of mine to, to put this on. And, about 10, gosh, my terrible memory, 10, maybe 15 years ago, um, I was working actually at the time with Rowan Atkinson on, on a show and his um, then wife, Sunitra, who uh, then produced a show I, I did as well. And um, I talked to them about the idea. I said, what, what do you think? And they, and they read the literal translation, um, which, was, which was great, uh, uh, and felt that there was absolutely something in this. But the rights holders in um, France said that at, the m at that time there was a interest and an option I think had been taken by a West End producer. Right. Um, so would you like to work together with them? Uh, and I said, yes, potentially, let's, let's, let's all chat and meet. Um, and uh, we did, and it turned out that they had a version which was modernized, oh, and nice. which was set in modern day Soho. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember we all read it and felt it didn't quite work. It felt, it, in some ways, it felt unnecessarily complicated to try and modernise it, and in other ways, it just felt like it, it didn't kind of serve the piece because attitudes have changed too much. Yeah. I mean, they modernised it slightly in the Robin Williams, Nathan Lane one, yeah. and they set it in Miami, but we were, that was already kind of, that was still, what, 80s, I think, or early 90s, early but, 90s, you know, sort of 20. 10 when we had this conversation and now you know now, now 2020 um it just felt like we needed to stick to the original and do it as a museum piece you know as wow. a piece of its time that works of its time um so we didn't go any further then uh, and then park theater um and building that rather took up time and then first yeah, few seasons <laughs> and then suddenly i sort of thought again well uh, this play still hasn't been done so obviously the, the producers who had it previously didn't get it off the ground so um i approached the estate again and, and they said absolutely go for it yeah. um and i thought well who better to 
to us to uh, adapt, retranslate it than, uh, than Simon Callow, who of course is so quintessentially English in one way with yes. it, you know, and actually is fluent French. So, so right. he went back uh, and asked me for the original French um, copy, uh, which uh, Nicolas Jean's, uh, uh, Jean died a few years ago, but Jean's son uh, sent to us. And Simon actually really just worked back from the original French text. Um, and, that, and that was wonderful. And he's done a terrific job with mm. the very fizzy, poppy language. Right. And you've got Paul Hunter in as well from Top an Idiot, who's yes. a wonderful physical performer. I think he really, yeah, he, he's really amazing. And uh, it just sort of is one of those actors who's in a, able to embody a whole characterization and what's beautiful. And we talked about this before we decided to work together, the, the idea that you can have something that's absolutely farcical, hilarious, but within it, there has to be a level of reality. So the farce is all about heightened reality, but within the reality of it actually, and the ridiculousness of it, you can suddenly have a very tender moment and a very poignant moment. Mm -hmm. And because Paul is one of those actors who um, makes sure that the comedy comes from a place of truth, you can earn those moments and it mm -hmm. should and is uh, it should be you know really touching when Georges and Alba come together at certain points um, and it, you should really feel for their love mm -hmm. um, so you know he can be a great diva mm -hmm. in one moment yes. but actually you just sort of cherish them in another moment mm -hmm. yeah, um, perfect looking forward to seeing it oh yes um, <laughs> me too <laughs> uh, so uh, coming back to the park I mean You've been running since 2013 now, coming up to seven years in, in the summer. Yeah. Um, how do you go about, I mean, you've been here since the beginning of the project. I mean, mm. essentially your idea. Uh, how do you go about shaping a, a brand new theatre for the, the community in Finsbury Park? That's a big question. Yes. How long have you got? <laughs> okay, I'll answer it in two and a half hours. Um, <laughs> let's see. Well, I think... For me, the initial important element was the area that we were in, and, and Finsbury Park lent itself rather well to a theatre because uh, of two factors. Uh, well, a number of factors, but well, the first one is really it had uh, a massive audience of theatre lovers mm -hmm. in the vicinity, not necessarily right by Finsbury Park, but people in Muswell Hill, people in Stroud Green, in Stoke Newington, in Crouch End. In the local area, many of them whom would use Finsbury Park as their transport hub, yeah. and they would come in there. And when we did some uh, research with Audiences London, we actually discovered that the highest percentage of London-based theatre-goers into the West End come from this area. Right. But they don't have a local theatre, mm. or they didn't. Yeah. So that was kind of key thing number one. Number two, the kind of flip side of that is that actually there's a huge population here who've never been to the theatre before, yeah. can't afford the theatre. Um, it's uh, true, I think, that Islington is the, certainly the London borough, uh, or was a couple of years ago, the London borough with, with, with the most diversity uh, between rich and poor, the biggest divide. Right. Um, and, and so whilst we have a lot of affluent patrons who we could potentially um, engage with and, uh, and bring into our space, we also have uh, a lot of people who've never 
had the chance to go to the theatre. And sadly, as we're experiencing more and more on a daily basis with government cuts uh, and cuts to education, schools are not even able to afford to take their yeah. kids, which is really sad. I'm sure, you know, you, like me, grew up being taken to school productions, you know, yeah. once or twice a year or, or sometimes a lot more or being involved in things. And now... Um, that's becoming a rarity and sometimes an impossibility. And we, we you know, we've turned um, to schools who couldn't afford to, to, to pay you know, full whack. At a, full whack would be our, our discount rate anyway. And we've we've said, well, you know, let's do three pounds a ticket for a Christmas show, which would obviously yeah. be a huge loss for us. And sometimes they can't afford that. Crazy. Um, and you think, gosh, so we're having to subsidise a lot ourselves and, and give out free. Um, free places sometimes and mm. invite people in for open dresses and, and things like that to make sure that we can engage with people even if they can't afford a quid right. um, because that's really important. So that was the other side of it that there, you know, there's two big council estates behind here and there's a lot of people in the community who um, we thought could benefit from, um, from having a theatre for the first time and, yeah. and, and the kind of cultural engagement that, that we could deliver through that. Um, and then of course the transport link was yeah. vital um, so the fact that you can look out our building, see the tube station, and nine minutes you're into Oxford Circus was uh, was really attractive. So really, when you say you know how to how to start building a new theatre, I think for us the key was starting with the right foundation, mm -hmm. because we couldn't just do it anywhere. It was about finding the right area where there was a need, um, and and uh, good transport links, um, and then beyond that, really, it, it was about making sure that we were known um, what I didn't want to do is open and two years down the line people say oh Park Theatre where's that well of course there still are people saying that because we don't have the <laughs> crazy millions of pound budgets to take out you know tube sides and, and bus sides and things um, but generally we're known in the local community and, and what we did uh, is we um, uh, we, we basically tried to do a massive profile raising um exercise before we opened. So we did a lot of tours and we did local resident tours, we did industry tours. Right. Um, and before we opened our doors in May 2013, we had showed about 2,000 people around the building. Right. So there was already a buzz and a lot of those people, even if just half of those people or 10% of the people yeah. are then excited about, oh, I want to see it having seen it then. And of course, most of them have all come back. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so creating a, a real kind of early buzz um, was key, and with that, getting some ambassadors on board. Mm -hmm. And so we have some fantastic patrons, I'm sure you know, yeah. um, and, and they have been really supportive and, and really key um, in lending their name. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, giving me your time. It's Not a real at pleasure. All. Thank you. Thank yes. you so much. Bye. Cheers. So that was my conversation with Jez Bond, recorded early this week. Something tells me we could have continued that conversation a good deal longer. So Lacage Falls, directed by Jez, opens at the Park Theatre on the 12th of February. Tickets start at £18.50. The other show mentioned there was Shackleton and his stowaway. That's on until the 1st of February with all tickets £18. So let's have a look at what's opening in the next couple of weeks. Uh, the Mime Festival is currently on across various venues in London. And that's on until the 2nd of February. One show I can personally recommend is Boys by the Pappy Show um, on the 20th and 21st January at the Southbank Centre. It's a really brilliant, tender show about masculinity. 
formed by young men of various ethnicities and sexuality. It's a series, really a series of small skits and sort of performance exercises um, sort of tied together as a show. But it's so revealing about each performer and what it means to them personally to be a man, what they think about the pressures put on men, you know, uh, and they, they also did a companion show for women uh, called Girls, of course. Uh, both pieces are really funny and, and incredibly moving. Um, so do check that out um, at the Southbank Centre. Julian, what would you like to talk about? All sorts of interesting things happening. I mean, currently uh, playing is uh, Phil Wilmot. Um, is a very interesting director. He's been around for a long time. He was the artistic director at, briefly at the King's Head Theatre, then moved to Scoop, did lots of things, reaching out to people, you know, turn up, stand in the queue, pay a couple of quid or something, see classic theatre. It was free. Oh, yeah, it was, it was free, wasn't it? Yeah, of course it was. Um, and, you know, just enjoy it in the open air in the summer and things like that, right next to City Hall. Done some really incredible work there. He has his own company, which periodically, you know, comes together and uh, all sorts of wonderful actors uh, come and go under that umbrella and do like a, a trio of, of plays. And he's uh, lately got into a relationship with the Union Theatre, which is a wonderful little um, fringe theatre, which has done so much in terms of uh, particularly musical theatre. Uh, but in, in other areas as well, uh, down underneath the arches, sort of between Southwark uh, uh, Tube Station and uh, London Bridge, so it's somewhere down there, Union Street. And this season, uh, starting off the year, he's got a trio of, of shows on there, currently running a version of Tom Brown's School Days set in the 1940s uh, during wartime in an English public school, rugby. Um, uh, but... Uh, is very much brought up to date. Um, a wonderful showcase for lots of new young actors. But coming up, um, that's nearing the end of its run, is the astonishing version, starting on the 6th of February, of Lionel Bart's famous wartime spectacular Blitz, which uh, takes uh, the, the centre stage, is, is the East End, bearing the brunt of the, the Blitzkrieg, the bombing campaign of the Luftwaffe in London in 1940, 41, 42, and so on. And uh, starring in, in, in that, we've got the wonderfully experienced uh, character actress, fantastic communicator, Jessica Martin, who will be leading a cast of no fewer than 19 yeah. performers on this uh, magnificent stage that they have there. It's an intimate space. I think there are only about 65 seats or something like that. So, you know, it's a pretty good cast to um, audience ratio there. And it's a chance to rediscover this wonderful uh, musical, which is full of terrific tunes and great commentary on the spirit of London, in particular, the spirit of ordinary people in the country when faced with colossal adversity. And as we move forward this year, this momentous historical <laughs> year, perhaps we might without wanting to pin things down too much, uh, bear in mind some of these thoughts and feelings that pass through your mind when looking back three quarters of a century. Absolutely. So when does that open? Very soon, on the uh, 6th of February. Okay. Even before that, a couple of days before that, there'll be something brand new from, uh, I wouldn't say it was necessarily the, the new Lionel Bart, but my goodness me, he's one of the most prolific writers of new musical theatre. He's called Ashley Walsh barely into his 20s properly. He has five shows opening in French theatres and student theatres in London this year alone. Oh, wow. Now, that's a kind of level of productivity that is rare, extremely <laughs> rare. He's wonderfully intelligent, very nice, kindly man, but 
very demanding, pushing the envelope about what musical theatre can do. I've seen several of his productions so far. Really, they take your breath away. You never know what to expect next. Well, he's now taking on the legal system. So it's a little while since we saw a musical based on that. <laughs> it's called Jury, and it will be, again, at upstairs at the Gatehouse, taking over a little residency there from the 4th to the 16th of February. I would book in advance. Yes. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, Sinead, what else? What are you looking forward to? Um, the Gift, which is going to be at Theatre Royal Stratford East. It's going to be opening on the 29th of January up until the 15th of February. Um, it's visiting... Um, Theatre Royal Stratford East as a part of a national tour and is the fourth production presented by Revolution Mix, a movement by Sheffield-based Theatre Eclipse. The tagline for the play is an outrageous play about imperialism, cross-racial adoption, cultural appropriation and tea. Um, <laughs> I'm interested about this play because before reading about this play, I didn't know about Sarah Bonetta, a West African daughter of a chief of Yoruba descent who was received by Queen Victoria following her capture during a war after the death of her parents. So seeing how this story is represented and is aligned with the present day narrative will be interesting. And the fact that it's also a comedy drama is also something that intrigues me, <laughs> um, how that will be embedded and whether it'll be like a mix of wit and dark humor and that kind of stuff is quite, it's quite interesting to me. And also we have Fragments of a Complicated Mind at the Theatre 503 from the 21st of January to the 1st of February. And it's an exploration of the mind of a black woman that will be, and I quote, interrogating race, religion, sex, and cultural expectations with witty wordplay steeped in shade and satire. It's written, directed by, and featuring award-winning multidisciplinary artist Damalola D.K. Fashola, who was also the movement consultant for Little Baby Jesus. Right. Um, it's similar to this play, it's something I saw at the Roundhouse, called Elephant in the Room, which use a mix of spoken word, movement and direct address to explore the psyche of an individual battling with internal and external pressures. And I felt like it was a really appropriate way to kind of explore the mind. Um, and it's something I didn't think would be an option as I'm not really one to kind of understand contemporary dance myself. Um, <laughs> so it was quite interesting how I was able to relate to the actor through movement and dance and spoken word. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how the cast of Fragments of a Complicated Mind is able to navigate that and be expressive and evoke emotion. And where's that on? Theatre 503. Okay, great. Cool. Um, and obviously, if you don't know, the Vault Festival opens next week as well. So that's the 28th Jan. Uh, now an eight-week extravaganza fringe theatre uh, in the tunnels under Waterloo. So I had a little look at the programme for the first couple of weeks um, and some of the things that jumped out at me were the, the Wild Unfeeling World, uh, that's by Casey J. Andrews, who did a really beautiful show called The Archive of, of Educated Hearts there last year, uh, which was a show uh, in a garden shed uh, talking about the personal stories of cancer within her family. I mean, uh, that sounds pretty bleak, but it's a really beautiful sort of homely show. So this, this year she's doing a take on Moby Dick, so that should be interesting, called The Wild Unfeeling World that uh, is on for the first week of the vaults at 6.20 each night. And another one that I saw get good reviews in Edinburgh was uh, Frankie Foxstone, a.k.a. The Prophet Walking Tour. So that is a, a sort of walkabout show with an estate agent, um, which sounds very funny. It's got really good reviews. So uh, I'm looking forward to that one. That's uh, 7 p.m. all through the first week there. Um, so uh, with the finalists being announced for the Off West End Awards, we uh, had a look through the nominations. Um, 
Amour picked up finalist nominations in four categories. That's the most out of any show. Julian, you saw that earlier this year. I'm so glad I did. Yeah, and I know a lot of people, when they hear more about this show, they'll be kicking themselves. They mm. didn't go and see it. It was like one of those strange shows that it, it is brilliant, perfect in every single way, and somehow word didn't get out. Mm-hmm. And I think, as somebody who's connected uh, with the industry explained this to me, it happened at more or less the same time that Amélie came right, out. Right, yeah. And people thought that Amélie, French show, you know, through composed... You know, romantic story, two-syllable word, starts with the letter A. You know, it's the same show. You know, people are in a busy world. You know, they're they're in a hurry. They made that kind of confusion. They thought, well, we'll wait for Amelie to to open and then we'll go and see it. You know, we don't have to worry about this other one. So people stayed away. They'll be kicking themselves and it will be back. I, I know it will be back because it was just perfect in every way. Michel Legrand, the great Michel Legrand, you know, the circles of your mind and all that stuff. He wrote the music for this. Well, people remember things like The Umbrellas of Sherbrooke. Mm-hmm. That was revived a little while ago. They brought into uh, the West End. And uh, we thought, yeah, it's a great show. But you know what? Without Catherine Deneuve, you know, smiling and looking beautiful, it wasn't quite as good. And people, I think, may have carried that over into this show thinking, yeah, Michel Legrand, you know, wrote lovely tunes for the films, but it doesn't quite work on stage. I was bowled over by this show. It completely works on the stage. It's radically better. You know, he's really learned all the lessons about umbrellas and turned it into something totally inventive and bewitching and fascinating. Jeremy Sams came in to do the translation. Clever, witty, natural. He knows uh, Michel, or knew Michel Legrand, um, expertly translating the world of sort of post-war French whimsy, you know, strange things happening. It's all about this guy who develops the ability to walk through walls and he turns into a kind of Robin Hood figure, you know, going into banks, you know, taking out some money and then putting it into the poor pockets of the sleeping poor okay. under the arches of the Pont Neuf and things like that at night. Uh, there's a, a, a beggar woman who's on the streets, you know, living out there. He goes and finds a beautiful diamond necklace in a, in a jewellery right. store and, and she wakes up to find it around her neck. You know, and it's full of these lovely little fairy tale adventures which make us ask some quite serious questions about wealth and and uh you know social differences and that kind of thing at the same time as giving us this incredibly inventive staging brilliantly done great fluency the whole of paris passing before our eyes wonderful piece of work done at the charing cross theater Mm. again a theater that is not allowed to advertise out on the street uh something to do with bylaws and and the fact this british rail or something like the national rail whatever they're called above them uh they're not able to really let people know where they are which is a bit of a pity because it's just the most wonderful theater and anytime Mm. a show is put on there you can guarantee it's going to have something worthwhile in it so i think it will be back the production is itself um a revival of something that Hannah Chiswick directing it did about four years ago at the Royal Academy of Music yeah. and she thought it would be an interesting one to revive and my goodness me it is with sort of uh, a, a more sort of professional company under uh, at her disposal and, and bigger resources obviously I just loved it there were lots of people in the audience who had seen it several times right. they were just bewitched it will come back okay Cool. Um, I'm really pleased personally to see Bullet Tongue Reloaded make it through as a finalist in the idea category. It's a really uh, incredible promenade piece made by the Big House in Islington, which is a theatre company that works specifically with children who've been through the care system. And they made this uh, incredible piece of theatre about uh, county lines, drug dealing, um, which was, you know, immersive, 
Um, we walk through various rooms, uh, the uh, sort of gang den, upper class people who are supporting the, the, the trade unwittingly, uh, all done by young people. Really, really fa- fantastic show. So I'm really pleased that's made it through as a fa- finalist. Um, Sinead, what did you pick out? Um, I'm happy to see Queens of Sheba being a finalist for a performance piece nomination because I just I just really loved it, um, to be honest. In my review of it, I called it a love letter for and by black women. And that's exactly what it was. It was very authentic, very real. Um, and it was a great portrayal of the lived experience of black British women with humour, pain and truth embedded throughout it. And the chemistry between the cast was beautiful to see and it brought Jessica... L. Hagen's words to life. Um, it both made me feel like I was being validated in my experiences. And it was also a way for people to be educated on this experience of being a black woman in London and, and, and being in an office environment or dating people. And it was it was very much taking you through the different steps and different experiences. And it wasn't heavy either. It didn't put blame on anyone. And it was just very well choreographed and very just very nice it just felt like four friends talking to an audience that was their friends and it it was it was a really good experience um i'm also happy to see um Irfan shamji um being nominated for um male performance in a play from the arrival at the bush theater um being adopted the idea of being adopted the experience being adopted isn't something that in my experience I consume a lot of in media and theatre um, and the way it was portrayed in The Arrival was very much a complex, real thing. Um, it, it felt very human. His performance felt very human and layered and I left feeling very disorientated and I didn't know what to do with myself afterwards because he was just so... It was It was just... I don't even know how to explain it because... I felt like I knew how he felt and he didn't even have to say anything. A lot of how he communicated his emotion and his thoughts was very non-verbal. You could tell that he was frustrated when, you know, he was trying to make his way in the family and he was trying to be a part of something. He didn't have to say, you just knew. And that was just from his performance alone. You didn't need dialogue to kind of confirm how he felt or or why he did this movement or why he looked away. It was was very, very human, I think, is the best way that I can describe it. and it was a lot to be confronted with this feeling of not being wanted and watching someone experience that over and over again, knowing what they want on the inside. And it felt like you were you were just kind of like looking at this man go through so much. And that's why I kind of felt very affected by it because you're like, oh, I, I, oh it's done now. <laughs> I can't help him. It was, yeah, it was very, very human and it deserves it deserves to be a finalist. Great. Uh, well, the awards themselves are on the, at the, uh, Battersea Arts Centre on the 8th of March Sunday 8th of March I think I said the 5th earlier that was wrong um, tickets are ticket details will be announced in due course keep an eye on the at Off West End Twitter feed for more details that's about all we've t- got time for thank you so much to my guest critics for joining me if you've liked the show please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and please let uh, your friends know about us of course if you'd like to contact the show please do send us an email it's podcast at offwestend.com and we'd love to read out your emails on the show in future podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with another show. Until then, goodbye. This has been a production by Disentangle Productions. Hold up. 